You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 24th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... I will shortly leave the job that it has been the honour of my life to hold. The second female Prime Minister, but certainly not the last. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. Having been warned not to waste the latest Brexit extension, the UK's governing Conservative Party decides to spend summer staging another leadership contest. My guests Georgina Godwin, Augustin Machalari and Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including what we've learned so far from the EU parliamentary elections, the first same-sex weddings in Taiwan and therefore the first same-sex weddings in Asia, and this year's headliners at Cannes. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 20. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Georgina Godwin, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Augustin Machalari. Welcome all. And we start here in the United Kingdom where the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has announced her resignation for what seemed like the 50th time, though it did kind of seem like she meant it. May said she will stand down as leader of the Conservative Party on June 7th, although now that I think of it, she didn't specify which year. She will remain Prime Minister while approximately 125,000 insane retired colonels i.e. the membership of the Conservative Party, decide which will be the next UK Prime Minister to be hurled into the fathomless hell pit of Brexit. We should have an answer by the end of July, which I think we can all agree is well worth staying alive for. Um, Georgina, we heard a clip of her um, exit speech at the top there. What, What did we make of it? You know, I think it's the first time that we've seen Theresa May show any real emotion Uh, and, you know, with the the tears at the end and all the rest of it. And I think that perhaps if that had come earlier, the public perception of her might have been very different. We had always this this very quite cold, the the Maybot, the the kind of uh, mechanised look of this woman who never really seemed to show anything. Sure, her voice went, it was clear she was under a lot of strain, but this was the first time that we really saw a person who was terribly sad about something and showing great love for something. And I mean, I think however much you think that she hasn't delivered, uh, however much she has frustrated us all however much one might object to her she certainly has tried extremely hard she just hasn't succeeded Uh, Augustine any sympathy at all for the analysis of May's premiership that she was dealt a bad hand that not really anybody else could have played much better I mean at the I, can I leap from dealt a bad hand to handed a ticking parcel? No, that's a, sho- <laughs> a, sh- a shocking, a shocking mix of metaphors. No, no, it is bad fair hand to, will do it. It is fair to say she arrived in office at an unpropitious time. Yeah, I have no sympathy for that. I only really enjoyed that bit of the speech where she cried at the end, and would like to listen to it again after the show, if that's all right. Uh, she has overseen a series of catastrophic domestic developments, all of which were really uh, hammered home in a recent report by the US, the special rapporteur on poverty from the UN. But I think, you know, if we look back at her professional record, her parliamentary record, she's kind of consistently been on the wrong side of history. So the idea that she's been dealt this terrible hand 
you know, doesn't really make up for her own mean-spiritedness, essentially, as a politician. She's responsible for the hostile environment, uh, the Windrush scandal. She has this anti-globalised outlook. She said, uh, if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere in a recent speech. She voted against gay adoption years ago. Like, she's not a sympathetic figure. And, all right, she didn't pick up the reins at a particularly propitious time, as you say, but she's a career politician. There's never a good time to assume the reins of a country that has all of the baggage and all of the complexities that the UK does. There's always going to be an issue. She has made no effort to unite the country. She's only divided it worse. She's always put her party before she's put uh, the interests of people. And she's used Brexit as this thing that's just sat there, absorbing everyone's energy, absorbing all the media's attention away from a catastrophic turn of events in the UK where children, I mean, what was it? Huge numbers of children live in poverty. Homelessness is uh, getting worse and worse visibly on the streets. You know, it's not even, you don't even need to look at the figures. You just have to walk out of the house once in a while. And you'll see that over the last five years, the amount of rough sleepers has just exponentially increased. A lot of it was on her watch, you know, and if it wasn't her doing, it was the doings of a party that she's given her life to serving. So, yeah, no sympathy. OK, we'll put Augustine down as a maybe. Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Fernando. The only thing positive that I could say about Theresa May is that I don't think she's the worst in the Conservative Party. And I think That's the a wor- low bar. No, but, no, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, the worst is yet to come. So I actually didn't feel very happy, even I completely disagree with Theresa May's views. I think she's been a, a terrible prime minister. Uh, but if you look uh, at the list of contenders, especially the favourite ones, I think it would be extremely damaging for Britain. And if you have any hope of the country to remain in the EU, I mean, uh, you're in bad luck. Uh, Georgina, on the subject of the worst is yet to come then, who does that seem presently likeliest to be? Well, unfortunately, of course, we're talking here of Boris Johnson. Now, the way that the election works is that uh, he has to be prepared proposed and go through by the majority of of MPs of the Conservative Party. And so the hope is uh, that the people who surround him, who know him best, uh, will say absolutely not and we don't want him at all and the the wider party will never get a chance to vote on that. Because this is the thing, is that if he makes it to that final runoff of two presented to 125,000 insane retired colonels, he he He, will win by a mile. He may do it. So so the only thing that's in his way are are his peers, are his uh, fellow MPs. But I think that the the, the issue here is that although they dislike him, they know him, they, he, they've seen his shambolic record, he is what stands between them and Nigel Farage or Jeremy Corbyn. He is electable. He has charisma in spades. We know he's a terrible person, or at least I believe so. Um, but he is electable, and that's what they'll be looking for. He is a better choice for them than Farage or Corbyn, which is what they're staring down the barrel at. I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking on the hoof here, so apologies in advance uh, if this uh, falls into a hole. But, you know, he's proved himself to be so fickle in the past. He famously wrote two letters uh, in anticipation of the Brexit, the EU referendum, one in favour, one against. And he essentially chose the one that he thought would best serve his uh, parliamentary career. Given that becoming prime minister is the kind of apex of that, is there any chance that actually he'll arrive there and realise that for all his blundering and blustering, there is no way that I, he can I in have, any way cement a legacy? I have of any said meaning? this before. I think there's. I think it's worth having ten pounds on Boris Johnson pulling a hundred and eighty degree handbrake. Yeah, he's just not to be trusted Brexit. for and, anyone. But, but just and, and, and reinventing like. himself as Captain Remain. Yeah, I, I can. I can easily imagine that happening. Yeah, he's so slick and or thinks he is that I. I, I don't. I mean, it seems like a, a plausible outcome, which you know. 
wouldn't be that bad. Wouldn't be good, but wouldn't be that bad. It'd be a lot better than you know having some headbanger in. Wait, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will have plenty more time to discuss this over coming weeks, but for the moment we will move along somewhat from the UK to the supranational body from which the UK has spent three years attempting to extricate itself, i.e. the EU elections to the Parliament of which are underway as of yesterday. It was always going to be the case that these elections would end up being seen as a referendum on populism, which, if nothing else, might inspire an uptick in the traditionally dismal turnout. Results are not declared until Sunday, but we do have the exit polls from the Dutch EU Parliament elections held yesterday, and they are more interesting than that might sound. It looks like the sensible centre-leftish Labour Party have done pretty well, rising from the grave in which they had been interred in the last Dutch national election. Uh, Fernando, uh, is the anti-populist backlash on? I would like to believe that, and, you know, who knows, because I'm pretty sure the far right would do terribly in Austria, of course, because of the recent scandals. And I've read that even in a country that has, you know, where the far right is very powerful, like Poland, I know there's been kind of a kind of a backlash. There's a lot of centrists, uh, you know, they're trying to, to battle. So I would like to hope so. I mean, not in the UK, I must add. Um, Forum for Democracy, Georgina, a populist party in the Netherlands, appear to have finished third. Geert Wilders Freedom Party, who were sort of pioneers of the angry nativist headbanger shtick, uh, appear to be down to 4%. And turnout is up. Not by much, but it's up. Seems up about 4% in the Netherlands. Is there a relationship there? The more people actually bestir themselves to vote the worse the angry populist headbangers do. You know, I think there absolutely might be something in that. And I think that we also need to look at why we're unhappy and and what that means. I think this huge divide in Europe and exploiting the unhappiness of people, which is what the far right is doing, um, I think it's down to the fact that that we are a progressive society. We've seen huge improvements during our lifetimes in, in healthcare and technology and all sorts of things. And I think this has created huge divisions. We can see that life can be improved, that progress is ongoing. We're also told that everyone's equal. We're all capable of greatness. But you know what? That's not the case. We're not. We're not equal. Some of us will never achieve anything at all. And when people realise that, uh, however much things should be great and we should be equal, when people realise that actually that's not the case, they just get really, really angry. And I think that's what's driving populism. Um, Augustine, on that note, there's not been a shortage of the sentiment that uh, Georgina describes here in the United Kingdom. There is some suggestion, it's not confirmed yet, but some suggestion that turnout here was up a bit on what usually show up for EU elections, which is usually about 33-35%. Might that make a difference? If more people have turned up, might we find that those predicted vast numbers for the Brexit party have been somewhat inflated? Well, as you say, the Yahoo's hold on to MEP positions because they're the only ones who can mobilise their demographics to vote, right? No one else. Which is partly because nobody really cares who their MEP is. And so it's only the passionate, you know, UKIP squad, historically the UKIP squad, who engender enough feeling in their electorate to actually warrant, you know, if, if, if you're ambivalent, then you don't vote for either way. If you hate the EU, then you vote for them. Um, so, yeah, I was suddenly started wondering if maybe there'd been a kind of 
inversion of the positions as these kind of fringe people become more mainstream and more people vote, then maybe, yeah, maybe it does swap round. But people maybe are that, dying, aren't they? I mean, the, the old guard are all dying. Since Brexit, I think about a million people who voted for Brexit have shuffled off the mortal coil. But perhaps this European election, you know, we are more interested this year. I see even in other countries. Finally, I see even my friends posting, you know, I voted today. You know, I read the Brazilian papers. They are covering the European elections. I don't think they cover that much, you know, uh, uh, the last time it happened. So I think there's clear more general interest well, at this time as well. Here in the UK, it's very much become part of the zeitgeist. And as you say, people are looking at it as a kind of uh, survey on the EU referendum. And it's become this kind of, uh, it's almost performative. I, I certainly, I can say anecdotally on my social media that a lot of my friends have been saying, vote, vote, vote. There's been this real upswing of kind of engagement. The pity is that no one was engaged before the 2016 well, on, on that referendum. subject, though, Augustine, and, and here speaking on behalf of your people, um, does it strike you that there, there has been a, well, not a resurgence, because that, that implies there was ever a surgence? Has there been a surgence of a sense of European identity among British, some British people, the 48%, since the referendum? Because for years it was the status quo and it was regarded as immovable and ineffable and unalterable, so people just kind of took it for granted, except, as you point out, the ones who were angry and furious about it and wanted to end it. Has there been that sense of inversion? Is, is that what was fueling things like six million people signing that petition, hundreds of thousands of people turning up on a pro-EU march in London, which sure as hell wouldn't have happened four years ago? Mm. Has there been a, a backlash to the backlash? Yeah, well, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, do you? Which is kind of trite, but true in this instance. Uh, there's been a lot of popular cultural figures sort of uh, really pushing the message. Wolfgang Tillmans, who's a Turner Prize-winning photographer, has made uh, made it his kind of mission, really, for the last few years to uh, campaign for uh, a more inclusive Europe, but also a, a, a more um, a better in, a, a better sense of European identity, as you're describing. The whether or not. Uh, people are spurred on by, you know, really solid reasons and whether it's more intangible cultural reasons, you know, resenting the idea that they might have to pay for visas when they travel uh, or that they're not part of, you know, they're not able to go and move to Berlin and be artists for six months <laughs> if they're so inclined. That I don't know. Well, I mean, there's always an upside. Yeah. Um, Georgina, has the EU historically done a bad job of trying to interest voters in these elections? I mean, I, I tend towards the less charitable view that really taking an interest in these things is not a huge demand on anybody's time. And if you can't be bothered paying attention, then you deserve everything that's coming to you. But but ha ha has, has the EU not done enough to in try and engage Voters. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's it's not the EU is not sexy in any way, and it really hasn't put itself out there saying you need to be involved in this. Um, in the way that we are, we do get involved in our national elections, the EU elections often just pass us by, except for this one, and that's what's so great is finally. I mean, I like uh, as Org was saying, one was seeing a, a lot of people coming together and people who wouldn't normally vote for these elections. I mean, uh, 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 younger people in particular who who just wouldn't care. I particularly like the the, um, the dogs at polling station uh, hashtag, which does drive a lot of people to polling stations. I think, um, which uh, which worked for me. But but I think I think that in in terms of of our of the EU itself pushing this forward, absolutely, you're completely right. I think that that hasn't happened uh, nearly enough. I just would like to add one line here. I think the EU could learn a lot with the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> in a way, uh, Fernando, is it's there anything, true. Is there anything in the world you don't think could learn a lot from I the Eurovision? 
true. As you didn't say, you know, sex it up. Of course, you know, <laughs> not 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 strictly, but you know, it's 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 about you know, the ad countries in, in, in you, practical terms. Fernando, how uh, is this going to work? How are you going to Eurovisionize EU Parliament elections? I will write a book on that. <laughs> <laughs> Just as one final thought, I think it's worth noting that. Uh, that obviously, you know, the the EU, as much as um, Brexiteers and anti-EU people might want to believe, is not a kind of weird globalist superstate. It is a bloc made up of disparate members with different needs and different interests, which means it's very difficult to talk about the EU elections as a whole without taking into account these different things. And fundamentally, you know, a, a nation's relationship with the EU is essentially contingent on how that nation's state apparatus frames the EU. If it gives it the... If it, if it, if it, if it, if it uses media and um, fosters public awareness in what the EU does, the money it pours in, the uh, use of... Schengen, all of these things, if it, if it reinforces the EU as a good thing, then I think the public are going to be more inclined to believe it. If you have a state which is oppositional to the EU fundamentally, like in Poland or like the far right of the Conservative Party here, then you're never going to have a public that's fully on board with it because that message isn't going to be spread meaningfully. And I think that people, that there is a, a fun, fundamental problem in that people don't really understand what the EU is. Mm. There's never been any kind of information programme that tells people what it, what it is and what it's for. And it was driven in by people like Boris Johnson writing articles for the Daily Telegraph about bendy bananas, which weren't true. He laughed himself at the time and said that he was writing rubbish. Well, on that happy thought, we will take a short break. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Augustin Machilari, Georgina Godwin and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Coming up next, actual good news from Taiwan and Brazil. With summer in sight, Monocle spins the globe to provide a fresh take on the world of travel. Our annual Escapist magazine is your essential summer companion. Inside the new, glossier format, you'll find interviews with industry leaders, including the CEO of Edelweiss Airlines and the Mayor of Florence. You'll see our pick of top airport buys and hear from the people behind the businesses that make your holiday, whether that's an Aperol spritz or a comfy lounger. Then it's time for the Travel Top 50, our annual survey of the best in everything from aviation to hospitality. And if you're curious about who won the plaudits for their hotel shake-up or pre-journey pit stop, then don't miss out. Finally, we hop on a plane for our favourite new destinations. Join us as we dig our toes into the sand at an up-and-coming beach spot in the Philippines, hit the road in Morocco and grab lunch in an Australian surfing paradise. There's still just about time to meet the creative shaking up Tucson, Arizona, before we finish off with a nightcap or three in a rather upscale part of Athens. Now that's what we call an escape. The Escapist is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Augustin Machilari, Georgina Godwin and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To Taiwan, which last week became the first country in Asia to get with the programme where same-sex marriage is concerned. Today was the first day on which such ceremonies could be performed and hundreds of Taiwanese couples have taken advantage of this riotously overdue reform. First out of the blocks seem to have been Shane Lin and Mark Yuan, who were married in a registry office in Taipei. They had waited 
waited 12 years to be able to do this, and best of luck to them. Elsewhere, specifically in Brazil, the current president of which is not noted for his interest in LGBT equality, the Supreme Court has voted to make homophobia and transphobia actual crimes. Um, Augustine, first of all, to Taiwan. In the, in, it's... It's the 20-somethingth country, I think, to legalise same-sex marriage, but it is the first one in Asia. Uh, How important potentially is that in the regional context? Well, I think potentially it is quite important. Um, My understanding is that Asia has a slightly deeper vein of social conservatism running through it. That means that homophobia is rather more normalised there than it has become in the West, where obviously it's now pretty aberrant and with good reason. Um, and often the kind of public perception and opinions are upheld and reflected in government legislation. You just have to look at Brunei, which has recently come under loads of fire for, and rightly so, for um, instigating a horrible death penalty for uh, homosexuality. Indonesia, where they uh, will lash uh, homosexual couples, all very unpleasant. I do wonder, though, you know, whether Taiwan is really going to break down these barriers there. I can't imagine China is going to rush to adopt its uh, its newfound we, kind of egalitarian policies. We may policies. be waiting a while for that. Somebody nevertheless needs to do these things first. Um, Fernando, I did want to ask about this decision of the Supreme Court in Brazil, your home country. Is, is that a surprise to you? Because it does seem to be obviously somewhat out of step with the prevailing political mood as embodied by Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro. Yeah, but Thankfully, our Supreme Court, you know, they are very kind of uh, moderate judges. In fact, when they approved gay marriage back in 2013, you already could see that they were, you know, trying to protect gay rights. And I think this is very happy news because, you know, Bolsonaro, of course, he he didn't say anything that he would change the law. But he clearly, I mean, he is a homophobe. I mean, he said things that he would prefer to have a dead son than a gay son. And then he retracted uh, from, from, from from that wording. So it means a lot because even though Brazil, I mean, we have the laws. If you're gay, you can get married, you can adopt. There's quite a lot of violence, which increased uh, since uh, Bolsonaro became the president. Uh, You know, people, I think, they feel more empowered to attack a gay couple holding hand in the street. And and, and you can see that. There's so many uh, different cases. So I I very much welcome this decision by the Supreme Court. And, and, And if I may add something about Asia. You know why I think this decision in Taiwan is so important? Because if you look back, just look at Europe. Countries like the UK, France and Germany, they only approved gay marriage this decade. I mean, sometimes here in Europe we say, oh, we're pro-gay, but it's, it's been a few years, you know, like, uh, so hopefully the same could happen in Asia. I agree with Augustine that, that clearly I think it would take a little bit longer, but I'm hopeful. I mean, it is it is a step forward and a step back. Uh, Kenya's high court just today has rejected an attempt to overturn laws criminalizing homosexuality. Uh, Georgina, this is where we're going to ask you to speak on behalf of your entire home continent of Africa. Is it imaginable that once, say, the, you know, the, the, the critical mass gets reached there as well. It's not there. There are, I think, it's it's legal in South Africa and I think one or two other places in Africa. Is this a kind of thing where there just needs to be a plurality of countries to do this, and enough other people and enough other countries realise that you know what the world didn't end? Well, I mean, as as Org was saying, Asia being a very conservative place, I think Africa again one can't generalise. You know, fifty plus countries, but but very much a, a conservative place. Um, it's really, really. Um, that the the timing of this is is extraordinary in that Kenya turned down these laws today, mm. uh, and this week we saw the death of Pin, uh, Binyavanga Wainaina.
Wainana, who's the Kenyan writer so. and, and gay activist, dead at 48 years old. He was HIV positive. He'd had a stroke before. So I mean, it wasn't, it, but it, it certainly did, I think, for, for his friends and admirers come out of the blue. And he had been somebody who had been um, campaigning for this for such a long time. And I think that people thought that actually Kenya might pass it this time and that, that there had been some relaxation and, and that it would have gone through. Uh, and 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 in the end, it, it didn't. Uh, and, and we keep seeing this in, in various countries in Africa where there's a, a big movement and you think it might, in Botswana, for instance, it looked very much like it was on the cars and then so just just didn't happen. Um, in Uganda, it's appalling the way that that, that, that that gays are absolutely, I mean, killed by people there. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a really, really dangerous place to be if, you, if you're gay. So I'm afraid that, that in terms of a kind of tipping point on, 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 the, on, on the African continent, I think we're some way off seeing that. But talking about uh, Brazil, um, as um, Fernando was saying, of course, this was the Supreme Court judges that did it. But they were all left-leaning. They were all well, appointed by left-leaning presidents. And I think also we shouldn't forget, though, that there is a that there is a, um, a commercial side to this. In that Bolsonaro is being um, uh, coming under pressure internationally. So, for instance, even that I think there was a Brazilian American Chamber of Commerce dinner in New York. The FT pulled out of that. Various other high high-profile sponsors pulled out because of 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 the fact that that he is a homophobic person. And, and I think Brazil is interesting because uh, you know we have all the laws. We have very modern laws when it comes to gay rights, but the reality for gay persons in Brazil is very different. The number of people being killed just because of their gay keeps rising. I mean, that, that's, that's not right. We have the laws, but, you know, they are not applied in real mm. life. Okay, well, finally uh, this evening to Cannes and to the annual film festival being conducted therein or thereat, whichever of those is correct. Uh, the headlines have thus far been commanded mostly by Quentin Tarantino's 60s Hollywood homage Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but there are new releases from Jim Jarmusch, Ken, Lu- Ken Loach, Pedro Almodovar and Celine Sciamma, among other big names. Um, I've generally taken the view that film festivals can be quite good fun as long as you don't make the elementary mistake of actually going to any movies but um which of these would would most excite anybody here so gathered i'm uh, looking forward to seeing once upon a time in hollywood it does look pretty good in and films. i'm looking forward to seeing the jim jarmusch film even though i have mixed feelings about jim jarmusch i'm disappointed to see that there hasn't been like a massive huge howler this year so far um, I guess it's because Lars von Trier wasn't entering anything. <laughs> but I did watch his film from last year, The House That Jack well, Built. Why would you have done that? That had people walking out, they were vomiting, they were calling him a misogynist, they were booing for 20 minutes. And I tell you what, I loved every minute of it. I thought it was great. I thought it was so clever. <laughs> and me and my friend were just riveted. Anyway, that, 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 that's po- what that, I like. That poster's going to be on, on the DVD case because it's, it's, it's all they're the going only, to have. The only, positive, <laughs> the only positive review has happened right now. But um, it is a shame when there's no one there to stir the pot, isn't it? And it really does make you realise how valuable figures like Lars von Trier, who might be a total clown... But with his kind of profanity tattooed knuckles and his like ludicrous outbursts that one has to wonder how obviously you can't make these terrible statements like he does about 
uh, I, I Nazis would, I, and not expect I, a clapback. But who's really taking that seriously? I, I, I am among that that cohort of humanity that would be entirely content never to hear from Lars von Trier ever again. I have a tip. I have a tip for Og actually, if he likes it. Go some on. of those crazy films. I mean, it's in competition for Palme d'Or. It's by a Brazilian director. It's called Bacurau, which is, has been described as a weird Western. Brazilian horror. Nice. So okay. that made me very curious and apparently people, you know, they laughed, they were shocked. So perhaps that's my tip for Candice here. Bakudao. I was, um, I'm always amazed by the fact that, that women actresses are, are out there. They are absolutely the face of Cannes, but in terms of, of directors, that's not the case. Relatively few films made by women directors have been selected for the, for the main slate. Not one has ever won the Palme d'Or, but there is one in contention this year, uh, and that is Celine Sciamma. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce her surname, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I think it makes her... I think she's one of uh, four uh, people up up for, for one one of four women rather um, on on that slate, which is which is wonderful uh, to, to to be there. And the team uh, around her was was mostly women as well. Uh, it sounds like a great film as well. It, it, is, about is, a, is there a car chase? There that, is that, no that, car chase. How about that? That's that's basically my only metric for judging these things. <laughs> there's no car chase. There's a portrait being painted, uh, and apparently it's very very beautiful to look at too. So that's the one uh, that, that is, I'm, I'm is, waiting is for. Is there at least a sword fight or a plane crash? Um, I have simple tastes. Yeah, and I'm just not sure that this is going to be your movie, <laughs> you want really. Conair or The Mask of Zorro or what? Or, French Connection. Or if somebody made a kind of version of Conair with Zorro in it and for some reason there was yeah a big thing with cars and... San Francisco. We should that talk would about be... this after the show. I think. Or a Brazilian Western horror, Andrew. Um, again, if there's if there's a, a plane crash and a sword fight, but you know, but why not? What's stopping us? Um, that does bring us to the end of today's show. We ha- we have things to storyboard. Uh, Fernando, Augustine, and Georgina, thank you all for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Fernando, researched by Neil Amnija. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's the menu with Marcus Hippie. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>